Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we guide emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Sean Gourley, a physicist and founder with a wealth of experience in data, machine learning, and visualization applied in areas like defense, financial markets, and epidemics, just to name a few. Eight years ago, he founded Prima, an AI company helping decision makers in large companies, governments, and defense services make sense of large volumes of data to improve decisions. And he recently stepped down as CEO to get a bit more free time to join us on this podcast, firstly, and then secondly, to immerse himself into the latest scientific research on swarm dynamics and computational creativity. Sean, thank you very much for joining us. Good to have you. Uh, thanks for having me on here. Great to, great to be here. So we were looking a bit about your background and um, earlier in your career, you chose to study physics and then go into nanotechnology. Uh, we were just curious, what sparked this interest? I mean, for me, physics was, was I think, um, something I was always drawn to. Mostly, I think, growing up as a kid, I had all these questions about why the world is the way it is. Like, why is the sky blue? Why are there two high tides every day? And, you know, why, you know, do the stars twinkle at night, right? These are all sort of questions growing up that I had. And, it, it you know, as I started to kind of learn um, about the, the fundamental laws that were creating these things, um, it just made me more and more interested to go and study deeper and deeper into physics to get a sense of, of what was really underlying um, the universe. Um, and so that took me on that journey. And, you know, um, I think physics has given me a, a, a wonderful grounding to kind of um, approach um, all sorts of different problems from a, a mixture of um, empirical research through to theoretical understandings. But I think overall, it really just gives us sort of first principle thing. It says, look, what's really underlying um, what we're looking at? What are the things that are driving it? And when you're building companies and building businesses, you know, I think that skill of being able to take data from the empirical side, have the theories, and then combine that with a sense of what's really important, what's really driving things. Um, it's a great place to kind of come from. And, you know, it doesn't hurt too that, you know, it, it trains you well in maths and computer programming. So I, I'm a big, <laughs> big fan, a big supporter of physicists, um, uh, you know, and um, it's it certainly done me well. Nice. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm also a physics nerd. Uh, I love physics. And I remember for me when I was younger, it was light that I was trying to understand and make sense of light was, was what really sparked my curiosity in physics. Uh, so you, you studied nanotechnology and then you transitioned into a PhD and you studied the mathematics of war. Uh, first of all, what is the mathematics of war? Yeah, so look, I, I came through nanotech, um, spent a lot of time um, alone in the physics lab running experiments <laughs> and uh, cluster deposited nanowires um, and seeing the conductivity behavior under, um, under uh, you know, magnetic um, you know, influence. But then when I got to Oxford, um, you know, I think I really wanted to take that opportunity to kind of push the boundaries um, of physics. And, you know, for me, that was coming in and, um, and taking a look at how um, we could use some of those um, techniques um, from physics to try and understand the world around us. And, um, you know, that, that led me all sorts of different places, but ultimately um, it landed into, into studying um, war and studying insurgencies, and particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to understand um, if there were any patterns in the violence and if there were patterns in the violence, um, you know, what would be creating those? And it turns out as we started that journey, 
um, you know, that it actually was. It was a whole bunch of, of different mathematical signatures in the way violence unfolds. And, and, you know, one of those ones is the distribution of the sizes of attacks. And so if you look at a, a conflict, um, you can plot out the distribution of attack sizes and it follows a power law distribution with an exponent of negative 2.5. And it's not just for Iraq, but that pattern seems to repeat itself all around the world. And it's as though um, all the different um, insurgent-based conflicts um, seem to coalesce around the same mathematical distribution of attack sizes, which when you think about it, of all the different ways that attack sizes could happen, of all the different distributions that they could choose from, every conflict that we studied coalesced around that exponent 2.5 or negative 2.5. And so what, what, as a physicist, you know, first of all, you, you discover these patterns. The second one is, well, what's driving, what's creating these patterns? And um, then you get in and start running simulations to try and explain this because, you know, when you observe a, a, a common um, mathematical signature, you start to think there must be common behaviours underlying this. And it turns out a lot of this stuff is, um, is really the way in which um, insurgent groups are formed, insurgent groups um, coalesce and the way in which they're attacked and the way in which they fragment over time. And so when you start looking at this, this kind of dynamics of coalescence and fragmentation um, is a sort of a characteristic signature of a successful insurgency. And the reason that all these um, conflicts have the same mathematical pattern is um, because if they don't find the solution, um, they're not around long enough to have any data. And so if you think about this, it's really, you know, survivorship bias that every insurgency that's, um, you know, figured out how to be successful has figured out a very similar organizational structure, albeit an organizational structure that no one inside of the insurgency is actually aware of. And so it's an emergent property um, that seems to repeat itself as a sign of a successful um, organizational structure. So really, really interesting stuff. And we, we published that work um, on the cover of Nature, and um, it really was, um, for me, kind of, I think, um, the culmination of five years of, of, um, of working right at the edges um, uh, of, of, of physics and, um, you know, a, a wonderful kind of, you know, um, experience to be part of that research team. I like the way you explain it. It's very much a physics way of explaining a phenomenon. And how did you approach the... So in physics, it's, you have a system, you can recreate it like m most of the time you can recreate it in the lab in an environment you can measure it you can study it when it comes to people it's a lot more challenging to do that how do you create assumptions around like why the phenomena why you're observing this type of patterns and how do you go about testing those assumptions yeah i mean so the first thing that comes through right it's, it's kind of like saying if you're going to model the flight of an airplane um what what assumptions do you need to put in and what assumptions can you leave out and so if you look at flight, right, you should probably look at, um, you know, wings and the shape of the wings. You should probably look at fluid mechanics and, and the flow of, uh, you know, air across those surfaces. You probably should look at weight and gravity. Um, there's probably some other pieces there that you should take into account. But it doesn't really matter what color the seats of the plane are, or it doesn't matter what's playing on the in-flight movie system, and it doesn't really matter what drinks are being served. So if you look at this, kind of the challenge, I think, when, you, when you're looking at this, is trying to say, well, what are really the fundamental forces that we should be looking at and what are the ones we can safely um, you know, assume to have be secondary importance? Now, when you look at conflict, um, you know, one of the things you have to look at and say, well, you know, we looked at um, insurgencies from Colombia to Sierra Leone to Afghanistan to Northern Ireland. 
to Iraq, um, all very different um, geopolitical um, things, all very different, um, uh, actually, even weapon systems um, being involved. And so when you look at these, you, you start to say, well, it, it can't it can't be driven by the differences. Right. Like the, this can't be something where it really matters um, that the, the conflict is between, um, you know, Protestants and Catholics. Right. Because if it were the case, then, you know, that that really goes out the window when you look at, um, you know, the, the FARC um, guerrillas in, in, in Colombia. So the dynamics of this um, start to come through and say, well, all right, well, what are some fundamental kind of, you know, you know things that could be driving the sizes um, of attacks or the timing of attacks, or the geographic diffusion of these attacks? And then you start looking um, for signals um, and, and, uh, in the models that you're creating. And, and the goal, I think, of all, all the work in physics to try and get the simplest model that can explain um, the most. Um, and, and that isn't, um, you know, that, that isn't, uh, you know, just piling all sorts of parameters in place to try and find, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, parameter optimization. And, and so I think, you know, the simpler the model you can create that can explain the phenomena that you're observing, um, you know, that's generally a pretty good sign that you're on the right direction. That makes sense. Have you studied, personal curiosity, have you studied anything about uh, Niger in West Africa? Um, no, I mean, I did... No, I don't think that was included in the data sets that we were looking at. One of the interesting things on this is when we started the whole process there was actually collecting the data it was actually very, very tricky. And so we're looking down to attack level data. And, you know, as it started out, um, no one had really, um, you know, invested a, a sort of um, a, a lot of time in creating a complete set of all this data from around the world. But we were lucky to work with um, some things in different places to get actually a pretty broad Said, I think there was, you know, upwards of a dozen different conflicts. We had high resolution data, but we also had to work to create, um, you know, some of the, you know, emerging, you know, uh, text processing and, and natural language processing to try and pass um, through all these different, um, you know, uh, descriptions of the violence that was happening. And so that was kind of the data collection side of this was was also a big piece of, of the equation. And you know, I think as we've gone on, people have, um, you know, got more data sets and, and, and subjects them to more analysis. So, you know, people may have looked at Niger, um, uh, you know, subsequently, but I don't think it was part of the, the analysis that we did initially. No, that's fine. Just personal curiosity. Uh, we currently actually, as of yesterday, there's a bit of a coup going on in Niger at the moment. Um, so uh, as preparing the talk with you, I was very interested in that aspect. And is there anything that maybe that's counterintuitive that you've learned about geopolitics when looking at it through the lens of data? Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things that, that kind of comes through from this is, is when you're looking to defeat an insurgency, um, the most effective um, attack strategy is to focus on the mid-sized groups. And so you think of a distribution um, of group capabilities, right? You have groups that are very strong, are able to carry out very large, very um, uh, deadly attacks. You have groups that are weak, um, that can only, um, you know, stage kind of low-level, you know, attacks. And, of course, you have um, groups in the middle. Now, these are all distributed according to this power law distribution. Um, and the groups over time become stronger, become larger, um, and they also become targets of attacks and fragment and break apart. So you can think of the cycle and this kind of ecosystem unfolding. Now, if you were to go in and say strategically, where should I focus uh, my efforts if I want to defeat an insurgency? Um, the general kind of um, assumption coming into this was you have to attack the largest groups, right? Focus on the biggest groups. And if you defeat the largest groups, you'll win, you'll win the conflict against the insurgents. 
But it turns out that um, that actually isn't the most effective way to do this because what tends to happen is the large groups tend to fragment and break apart. They take all the knowledge that they've um, uh, you know been able to collect over time on how to how to kind of defeat the opponent, um, how to create new types of attacks, and that gets distributed back into the rest of the system. And so when you attack the large groups, they fragment, and all the knowledge redistributes it back through the ecosystem, and then it goes again. Um, instead, um, what you want to do is focus on the mid-sized groups, the middle groups. Now, now the reason for that is because um, if you can focus on those, you stop small groups becoming large groups, and then the large groups start to ossify. They start to um, become uh, almost sort of pseudo-political structures, right? They're now having to potentially occupy land. They're having to provide um, resources and services, and they're not getting any small kind of innovation emerging up into them. And so if you stop that um, sort of cycle through the trajectory inside of the ecosystem of small groups getting better, becoming larger, and large groups, you know, getting attacked and redistributing that, um, you know, innovation back into the ecosystem, then you effectively break, you break the kind of, um, the successful elements that make insurgencies very, very effective. And so focusing on the mid-sized groups, um, you know, breaks um, uh, an ecosystem more effectively than any other kind of strategy that you have. And so that's definitely not, um, you know, I think, you know, what you would look at um, from sort of standard doctrine. Um, but as we've taken this research through and it's fallen, um, you know, into the hands of, um, of uh, people that are focusing on counterinsurgency, it's starting to become now um, something that um, has changed in the way that insurgencies are being fought. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And so you've learned, uh, so you've now delivered this project, you delivered your thesis, and you then transitioned into being the co-founder and CTO of Quid. Uh, first of all, what, uh, what's the mission uh, behind Quid? Yeah, so for me... Um, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to come out and um, and build things, right? So I've been in this sort of place of, of, of doing the research and publishing papers and, and, you know, getting the PhD and all that. And coming out of that, I, I knew that I wanted to um, to do more than just publish um, theoretical papers. I wanted to, to go and build. And for me, um, you know, that was, that was um, you know, what brought me out to San Francisco. And, um, you know, what I became really interested in this was this idea of how do you visualize complex um, data sets, right? How do you interact with them? If you have huge amounts of data, how do you kind of, you know, as a human start to engage with that? And one of the things there, I think, um, you know, was was going into that was looking at, at how do you um, how do you make use of the visual cortex and, and all the visual pattern recognition systems that we're really, really attuned with to kind of display data in a way to kind of analyze it, to understand it and, and to use the visual uh, part of our brain to navigate through it. And so this is really sort of start of, of um, you know, of big data um, 1.0 and, um, you know, allowing humans to interact with it. And so we started, uh, we started quitting around uh, 2009 and, you know, it was early days in that space, but, you know, it, it was it was over over time it really kind of like evolved into I think a, a really interesting way of topological data analysis um, to kind of visualize high dimensional data structures and two dimensional um, interactive um, environment inside of your web browser and so we're able to kind of go and visualize tens of thousands of data points projected onto a two D um, space and and that would um, allow you to see all sorts of patterns and structures and things and everything from you know, predictive, um, you know, predictive modeling on investment theses through to, um, you know, uh, you know, customers that were using it for analyzing um, sentiment and language, um, you know, for, for marketing and PR, 
um, you know, through to strategic, um, uh, you know, strategic analysis um, by customers in uh, strategic uh, strategy consulting, and you know, customers like you know the Boston Consulting Group using that to kind of understand um, the emergence of uh, different um, uh, technologies um, over time. So, really, really fascinating space to be in. Um, and you know, um, a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful, uh, you know, group of people and technology to sort of work with. And um, it it was it was a, it was a fun a fun time to be in in, in San Francisco as well. I remember um, we was down at one hundred and one South Park in San Francisco. It was you know there was Yelp around the corner, Twitter was around the other corner. You know, it was you know it was ping pong, um, you know, games and and um, and late nights and you know um, you know avoiding. Uh, you know, uh, avoiding um, you know any sort of um, any sort of distractions that, um, <laughs> that that didn't involve ping pong, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> it was it was good times. Must have been a, a great shock going from like the academia in Oxford to the Silicon Valley innovation, fast paced. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I so I was at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and. You know, it, it, I think, you know, consciously or subconsciously, I wanted to go to a place where, you know, that meant nothing, right? Where, where no one really cared, you know, where, you know, where you'd come from and you had to sort of come in and, and prove yourself again. And, you know, I think the, the Rhodes Scholarship going into, into Silicon Valley in 2009, you know, no one cared, right? And, you know, you couldn't, you you know you weren't able to trade off of that it was like you know it was like you know i don't even know what that is or i don't even care what that is it's like what are you what are you, what are you going to build what are you going to create what are you going to make and so you know i had this i i think this sense which you know you know like you, you want to go and you know put yourself in a place where you have to prove yourself and and um you know that was you know silicon valley 2009 was was certainly that kind of place and uh you know it was it was uh it was a good challenge Talking about building, actually, so I guess you went from academia to now into the startup world. What was your first prototype like? What what was your first approach to building something and delivering it to a customer? Because the product that you're describing can solve a lot of different problems for a lot of different customers, which is great in a way, but can also make it very difficult when you're getting started. Yeah, and looking back at it, I think, you know, I think coming out of the academic world and going into into the into the business world, you know, I think it's like the first first novel you write is sort of you know your story. It, it's it's sort of you know it's 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 there. I think the first company you create is kind of like your kind of set of interests, right? And you know that can be quite good, right? Sometimes your interests align with what the um, with what the world needs um, or what customers want. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I think though that the first company that you build, um, for me anyway, and I think for a lot of academics, is is one that really pushes, you know, the the boundaries of what's possible technically. And you know, I think that that can be really interesting from a deep technology perspective. Um, but it, it's not the traditional way that you would necessarily go and think about companies from market size and you know competitive dynamics and total addressable market and all the rest of that. And so, looking back at it now. Um, you know, you, I, I, I think, um, you know, there would probably be a lot more work done on, on the sort of, you know, the business side of it, but I think building the company the first time, it's just got enamored by the technology of what the technology could do and where it could go. And it turned out, 
you know, that there was, you know, a good market for that. But, um, you know, I'm not sure that that would be standard uh, business school practice for how to, um, to how to, you know, build and create and shape companies. But if you're going to go and throw yourself into kind of building something, you know, first and foremost, you better be passionate about the technology and it better be able to hold your interest, um, you know, for, for at least five or six years, um, you know, as it goes through. So, you know, we, we went through and, and, and built the technology and then it really was a case of, well, where is this technology going to be useful and valuable? And, um, you know, I think there is there's some merit to that, you know, um, way of building companies. But, um, you know, looking back at it now, we you know, I would probably spend a little more time looking at the market and, and having that inform, um, you know, the, the creation of things. But at the same time, you know, it's more fun to build technology that's right at the edge than it is to kind of, you know, um, to sit down and listen to sort of a, you know, um, listen, listen to someone saying, you know, they just, you know, they, they want, you know, to be able to load more rows into their Excel spreadsheet, right? You know, it's just, <laughs> so, you know, you can take it, you can take it on both sides. So coming from academia in Oxford and then moving to the, moving to San Francisco and starting a company and transitioning into the business world, what did you find most challenging um, about the whole experience, both transition from a geographic perspective as well as from an occupational perspective? Yeah, I mean, lo looking back at it now, um, you know, I'd had I'd had offers on the table from from large hedge funds, um, from from the big you know management consulting groups, and all of these things there, and and, and they were they were pretty significant like offers coming out of Oxford, but I knew that if I took one of those jobs that it would be really hard to go in and, you know, bet everything on building companies, right? Like you would just get too comfortable um, in, 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 those, in those environments. And I, coming from, coming from an acad academia, you, you, as, as a PhD stipend, you, you, you know, you, you live on nothing, right? Like you're, you're really, you, your costs are pretty low. Like everything's pretty small. It was just like, well, like the risk tolerance for me was, was extremely high, right? Like it was, it was like, well, I, I can, I can sort of bet everything because I'm not really, you know, um, I'm not really living on anything and, and I can bet everything on a really risky, you know, set of behaviors. And so going out to, to the Valley was conscious that, you know, um, that there was a bunch of things perhaps that I could learn or, or could know from going into other environments, um, but that my risk tolerance would change. And so I was like, if I, if I don't jump now into this, like, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be in a place in, in five years where I, where I want to make that jump. And so there's a sort of thing, right? Like, you know, it's easy, it's easy to get comfortable in your life. It's hard, it's hard to kind of, um, to, to take those risks. And so one of the things you look at is, is, um, is avoiding that sort of comfort and, um, and, and, and always kind of choosing the risks that are around it. If you're in a place to do that. And I certainly was. So coming into that, um, you know, there, that, that was, that was sort of top of mind. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, going into that, there was like a whole bunch of things that I just didn't know. Right. And, you know, this is also 2009. So Y Combinator was just starting up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, people still didn't really, they hadn't really got the sort of the pattern matching of how you build companies like this. It was a pretty, it was a pretty, you know, sort of inside um, baseball kind of thing, right. Where, you know, you had to go to Silicon Valley to sit and listen and learn and understand from the people that were building these companies um, what they knew. And, and um, you know, you, you sort of became part of that guild, but it needed to be there in person. 
And so, you know, coming in, I, I had no idea what a Series A was or what, you know, preferred stock was or, you know, what, 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 a, what a venture investment really entailed. I knew that Silicon Valley was where you went to build things. And I knew that excited me, but I had no idea about anything else. And, you know, what, what I, you know, knew was that if you, you know, in my experience, it always taught me if you go somewhere where there are practitioners that are passionate about what they're doing and you immerse yourself in those environments, you're going to learn a whole bunch of secrets from those guilds um, that most people don't know. And, you know, I viewed it very much as a sense of, well, I'm going to go here and learn. Um, I'm going to go here and build and I'm going to go here and figure it out. And, um, you know, that's, that's exactly what, what happened. But I, you know, I, you know, I look back at, at how much I didn't know at that point. Um, but that's kind of life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If it was uh, too easy, it wouldn't be, too, it wouldn't be that fun. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the sense. Yeah. Just, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Right. So yeah. you, know, you can, you can, you can start. I mean, that's, that, that that's one of the, that's one of the superpowers you have probably as a first time founder straight out of education is your ignorance. You don't know exactly how difficult it is. So you just take the plunge and you try to figure it out on the way. Yeah, there's a song. There's a song um, uh, by Coldplay called "The Scientist," and, it, and one yeah. of the lines in the song is, "You know, no one said it would be easy, but no one ever said it would be this hard." And <laughs> you, you sort of go into it. You go into it all. You're like, "Yeah, I know it's not going. I know it's not going to be easy." Yeah, I get that. And then you get through. You're like, "Well, God, no one said it would be this hard," and and it, and it, it really is. I mean. You know, it's it's one of the hardest things you'll do is to create, you know, something from nothing and, you know, to take and, and build a company to scale it to tens of millions of dollars of revenue, starting from nothing, doing it at the edge of, of technically what's possible and doing that with no experience of having built companies before. It's incredibly difficult. And, you know, I think, you know, the ignorance of that, you know, if you knew how, if I knew how hard it was, you know, I think that the job at the hedge fund or the consulting company would have been a lot, <laughs> a lot more attractive. Yeah, for me, it was uh, my dad. He started a few businesses. So when I told him I was starting a startup, he was like, you know, starting a business is hard, right? I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay. Just he just left it there because <laughs> he knew there was no way he would be able to just explain to me how hard it was and. I just might as well just figure it out. Myself. No, no, it's one of the things having gone through it. Every time I sit down with, with, um, with founders now and, and talk to them that are just on the, on the first journey, you know, always sit down, always ask, how are you doing? Um, because I think, <laughs> I think it's, it's just, you know, no one really knows how hard it is, um, except for those that have gone through it. And, you know, when you are in that space as well, sometimes you think it's only you that's that's really struggling um or, or finding it difficult or whatever but you realize actually when you have those conversations everyone is and and that's because it, it's hard right it, it's 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 hard because you're trying to scale and build things so quickly so fast in such a rapidly changing environment um there's no way that's easy there's no way that's easy and um you know it's hard because it's hard yeah and actually one of the parts that's the hardest that you don't necessarily know about is people like dealing with people uh so as part of quids um i think so 2008 was probably when the term data scientist started floating around uh how was it for you building uh the technology and leading the technology function in the company and around hiring people and finding the right people yeah it was interesting so at the time we actually started 
there was um, a group of us that were kind of in San Francisco dealing with, with large data sets. Um, there's people like Jeff Hammerbacker, who was one of the key data people at Facebook, and DJ Patel, who was one of the key people at LinkedIn. And, you know, um, a bunch of us would get together, um, you know, every week and, and grab drinks and, and just talk about data because there was no one else to talk data with. And so we, we formed the Data Drinking Group, or DDG, um, <laughs> Which, which really, um, you know, became the sort of the, the heart of um, a lot of a lot of the big uh, the, the, the the big work in, in, in data science, and um, so many of those people that were there drinking um, in that environment, you know, went went on, you know, to form companies like Kaggle um, to go and you know, um, you know, form you know venture capital funds like DCVC to go and you know, you know, create you know big data infrastructure at Facebook at LinkedIn, you know. It was amazing to kind of see that, you know, come together. And so one thing I'll you know, say was like, you know, that that sort of like group of people, um, you know, we all learned from each other and, and all kind of traded, you know, uh, understandings of, of, of what we were doing and how we were doing it. And it was it was a wonderful group, um, you know, that, that I think, you know, was really at the heart of the whole data science movement. Um and, um, you know, in, indeed, I think, um, you know, people, you know, DJ and GF actually coined the term data scientist. Um, and so, you know, that, that was that was, you know, fantastic um, to be part of all of that. Um, I think, you know, in terms of the recruiting side and finding people. You know, I think one of the things when you're going through that and doing that the first time. Is you don't really know anyone. Right. So when you're building a second company or a third company, you know, the people you've worked with them, you've got a network for the first time. You know, you don't really know anyone and no one knows you. And so what you're left with is trying to find people, um, you know, that, um, you know, you're seeing something um, in them um, that no one else is seeing. Because if, if they'd seen it, they would have been hired by one of the bigger companies or they would have, you know, been paid a lot more and you probably couldn't afford them or, or they wouldn't come and work for your tiny little company. And so you, you end up looking, um, you know, for these little sparks um, of, of things that, um, you know, that, that other people aren't seeing. And of course, as you go through that, like, you know, that, that becomes a sort of sense of intuition. It becomes a sense of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a little, a little, a little something that you see. And so, you know, that, that was probably, you know, there, I think as, as you go on with these companies, you get, you know, more of a choice, you've got more reputation, you can be much more choosy. But I think in your first company, when you're building these things, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of looking for those, those um, diamonds in the rough. And we found a bunch, I think, of, of you know, super interesting people that came to work with us, and um, you know, many of them have gone on now and, and had you know fantastic careers, um, you know, inside of all sorts of different companies. Which I think is always you know the sign of success is if you can hire someone you know very early in their career and they go on and and have a great career. I think you've 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 you've, you've picked well, and um, you know, you've been a pretty positive you know influence on on the whole ecosystem. Any interesting stories of someone that uh, surprised you in, in good or bad? Yeah, you know, it was, it was, I remember where I learned we, there, there was one test that we had, math, you know, that would run sort of quite a challenging mathematical test and no one would really solve it. It was kind of one of those ones that, you know, you put out and it wasn't really meant to be solved. Um, and I remember one person solved it and we, we ended up hiring them. And, um, you know, it turned out that they were just terrible. Um, and, <laughs> they didn't, and then I realized it was a sort of correlation of like, you know, it, there are some things if you can do them, you probably aren't a good fit for sort of like, you know, companies. And so it was one of those ones that, 
that that sort of uh, I remember sitting with me and I was just like, yeah, that you know, if you're too good at something, it means you've you've you're probably not good at the other things. And so, you know, I think there's there's a sort of you know inside of that, it's like this question: how, how do you run? Um, how do you run, uh, you know, interviewing processes to really get to the heart of what actually is correlated with being a good performer? And that always sits in my mind, you know, that sometimes, you know, it, it's it's your test that's kind of measuring the wrong sets of things, you know. So that's there. I think on, on you know, on the other side of, of people that, you know, people that that were you know very good, uh, you know. Uh, it's funny when you when you look at it. We got people now that are you know chief revenue officers of very large you know companies around that we hired as as, as first time salespeople. We've got you know people that that we hired um, you know as as their first job out of college that are now you know very successful founders um, you know that have raised tens of millions of dollars. And you know I I, I still sort of I look at this um, and think of you know how how do you know when you're sitting down with someone, you know, if they're going to be any good? And, you know, I, all, all I've, I've got to in, the, in this place here is like, you know, it, it's, I've not found a test that's, that's really, um, that's really predictive of that. Um, the only thing that I've, I've really found is that, um, you know, it, it for me really is, is a kind of a trust your gut um, or trust my gut kind of, you know, feeling. And that's, that's sort of, I think, done me well. I think, I think the second bit is, you know, if, if you are, if, if you put enough barriers in way of people with, you know, you go through is like, well, here's the mission and you've got to be very aligned with this mission. Here's, you know, here's the kind of the cost to you in terms of, you know, it, you're going to have to take a salary cut and you're going to have to go through all this. Once you start putting cost functions in, in front of this, and really aligning on mission, the people that you tend to get are really in, are really in for the ride. And, you know, you know, people say, you know, your values, you know, are good, but they don't really mean anything until it costs you something to hold them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people can agree with your mission, but it doesn't really mean anything until it costs them something to agree with that mission. And if you can set up as, as you know, as I've, I've tried to do, um, a, a mission that actually has a cost function associated with being part of it, and of course a reward function if you're successful. But a mission with a cost function that um, upfront you have to pay a cost, then you get people that are very, very committed. And if they're committed, and you put them into an environment with other committed people, I think they get part of that cycle of really learning and moving and changing and growing. And you know, and, and then I, I, I sort of think of that as like, well, you know, if you're part of that, you're going to go on and do good things, right? If you're part of that environment. You're going to take a lot of that learning. You go off and and create many new things from that. And you know, we're certainly seeing that with with um, a lot of you know the, the alumni from Primer. I was you know going through you know that there, and I, th- I think there's you know on order of ten um, you know uh, founders that have come out of that that have started their own companies that have raised you know a five million dollars plus to go and build and create in the AI environment. And that's one of the things for me that that's you know there's wonderful to see. And I sit down and and chat with with some of them um, about their journeys. But, you know, when you can hire people for their first job out of college and for them to come through, go through, spend two, three, four years working with you and then come out of that and start their own companies, it's it's really fantastic. Um, but it also means you're doing something right um, and building the team and the culture where people can come through and, and really, you know, use, you know, I think use that um, experience as a springboard to go off and, and do do, um, do great things. 
Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think it's a bit overlooked and undermentioned that the, the role of the founder is to effectively try to build a product, the first version of it, and figure out whether or not you can add value to someone's life with that. But then very quickly, once that equation starts to work, your focus needs to start moving towards building a, a good, high-performing team around you. And a lot of that is exactly what you mentioned. It's it, There's a lot of intuition. There's some data you can you can access about people's skills. You can see portfolios and see how they've done work in the past to make sure that they have the technical competency to do a specific job that uh, you need to be done. But then ultimately beyond that, when kind of uh, shit hits the fan, are they aligned on the mission? Do they care about sticking with you? And uh, can they power through? That's very difficult to, to find and ascertain in people. So it, probably once you start to, to, to do that a few times, you start to build a bit more of a sense of intuition on what to look for. Um, are there any specific key signals that you've noticed when you are talking to people? Yeah, one, one is, you know, I was sort of, oh, it's a negative signal, but it's kind of, you know, if, if you, you know, what do we call kind of people like, you know, phoned in rich, um, they say, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to, but I got a lot of money. And it's kind of, you you can hire people that have had a lot of success and generally success in the Valley comes with financial rewards. Mm. Um, but there's sort of a thing where, where the financial reward has become so much that they've sort of lost that spark or they've lost that, that sense. And so we sort of call it, you know, phoning in rich. Um, and, and, you know, it's a tough one because you get these stars, um, and, you know, you're like, you know, you know, they're there, but then you realize that there's quite a different profile from someone who, you know, has got just, you know, an all or nothing, right. This is, this is what they need to make, to make their career. So that, that's one, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, it's a negative signal. It's not, you know, again, these things are not perfect, but I, I, you know, I do think there's a sort of a financial number where, um, it becomes, I think, highly probable that, um, you know, the, uh, the sort of the fighting tooth and nail attitude, um, you know, starts to diminish. Um, mm. so that's one side, you know, on the other one, I think, you know, when you're building a company, you need to hire people that are ultimately company builders, right? I always say the hardest thing about building a company is building the company. Um, <laughs> and what that means is everything that exists has to be made by someone, right? It, 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 it didn't exist. Everything from, you know, the, um, the HR system through to the sales process, through to the code that underlies it, through to the security systems um, on your laptops and the billing and invoicing, you know, dynamics for any compute you're buying, right? All of that has to be created from something, um, from nothing. Um, and so you want to hire company builders. And what that means is ultimately these are people that you should expect to go and start their own companies, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I think if, if you've done that well, um, you're going to have a whole group of people that are very, very um, excited by and comfortable taking on and creating something from nothing. And it's kind of this, you know, sort of philosophy where I tell people, it's like, you know, build your own damn house, right? <laughs> like, you know, here's, here's the nails, here's the wood, right? But go and build, go and build a house. Like, no one's building it for you. Um, if you expect the house to be there, then you're in the wrong place. You need to go and build your own damn house. And that sort of philosophy, which is just like, you know, go, if a good, good idea, great, go and make it, go and do it, make it happen. And, you know, one of the things you, you sort of see, I think, is some people really gravitate to that and get excited by it and say, wow, I get to build my own house. Fantastic. Like, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Other people are like, 
you know, it, it's kind of like, well, how do I know what what kind of house to build? And 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 you know, is it, you know, I'm not sure about this. Could you? But I don't really, I don't really do this kind of like carpentry. Can someone else is like all of these pieces that come right? And and I think you know, sort of to extend that metaphor, it's just the people that are excited by it. Now, it may not be the best house in the world and it, it surely will be rebuilt over time, but somebody has to create that, <laughs> you know, to start. And the people that are excited by that sort of freedom and excited by taking and stepping that up and excited by, you know, being able to do all the things um, that will challenge them, I think are wonderful people um, for startups uh, to, to, to have. And you would expect them to go and start their own companies. One of the hard things is actually as um, the company grows, like, you know, those people is keeping those people in the company because the first thing they want to do is go off and start their own companies. And, you know, one of the things I say to them is, you know, look, you can and you should, and um, you should go off and start your own company. Um, but there's probably a Not few now. things you could, there's probably a few things you could learn. And in those things that you could learn, um, let me tell you why it's really important to learn them here and and not try and figure them out for yourself, right? Because once you start a company, the decisions you make in the first 12 months stay with you for the entirety of that company. And if you make mistakes in those first 12 months, yeah, you can get past them, but they're always going to be a drag on the system. They're always going to be something you have to live with. And you are going to make mistakes. There's no question about it. But I think you'll make less mistakes if you sit around here and keep working in this for the next few years and then jump in and create your own um, from from there. So I do think there's a lot of benefit if you are looking to start a company is to join um, an emerging early stage company with great people that you respect, go and put in two or three years and then come out and say, right, given what I've learned, you know, what now do I want to go and build and, you know, take, take those lessons, um, you know, forward. So, um, you know, I, 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 I would highly recommend jumping in, um uh to to a company before you go and start your own <laughs> okay too late on that one for us okay. <laughs> um so i suppose what are some of the, i i it's a good pitch that you you give to, to people <laughs> within the company it seems yeah you you clearly learned from starting quid and then primer uh what are the things you've done differently when you started the second company yeah look with primer um I think there's a few things that go through it. The first is I was just, you know, really intentional about the investors I took on. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, you realize as, as a founder and CEO that you um, spend a lot of time with your investors and your board members and choosing them very carefully um, at the start, particularly the seed investors, um, you know, and, and, and taking that, um, you know, with, with, with I think, uh, the sense of these are the people I'm going to be, um, working with um, to build this company. I think, you know, that's probably um, was certainly something, you know, for the second time of building as you, you, you think about your investors very closely. And, you know, the, the reason is, is that, you know, um, the kinds of bets you want to make and the things you want to do have to be aligned uh, with, with what the investors are looking for um, or what they thought they were investing in. And um, that has, a, that has an, an outside, an outsized uh, uh, impact, I think, on, on both your you know, um, your working um, life, but also what you end up building and, and how you end up building it. I think the second thing um, there is you, you tend to pick, um, you know, the four or five best people that you know in the industry um, to come and work. And you've got that, that sense there. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I've learned in that is you, you want to pick 
you know, about 60 or 70% of the people that have worked together before and about 30 or 40% that haven't worked with the team. And there's some really interesting research on this, um, you know, around successful, you know, creation of teams. Um, and generally that sort of blend of 60 to 70% um, with familiarity and having worked and 30 to 40% new is a really nice way of doing that. And so that was something I was certainly conscious of there, putting that team together. I think the, um, the other piece coming through, um, you know, was, you know, to, for me was, was to pick something, um, that was, um, uh, a technology that was, I would say closer to kind of, you know, the realm of, of what was possible rather than sort of more science fiction. And, um, you know, in, in 2015, um, you know, we, we picked, um, artificial intelligence with, um, with, with natural language and, um, you know, it turns out that what we thought was possible and that, um, you know, wasn't even close to what was able to be done today. And so, you know, we were right into, insofar as, you know, um, I, I was certainly right insofar as it was going to be an interesting thing. I don't think in 2015, I, you know, any of us really had any idea that, that it would continue to kind of grow exponentially in capabilities and technology. So, you know, I, I think starting companies, it, it's you want to catch a wave. Um, you want to catch a wave that that takes you along for the ride, and hmm. artificial intelligence was um, a, an incredible wave to to jump on in 2015 and to be part of. And you know that that I think you know we did really really well um, with with uh, with Primer. And um, the second wave that we jumped on was was the defense and intelligence applications. And you know that was that was a macro bet from my side that. The um, the defense spend um, from the U.S. Um, military was going to increase, um, and artificial intelligence was going to be the heart of that spend. And that was driven by the belief that the world was going to move to become more unstable, and that great power conflict between U.S. and China um, was going to start to become a, a driving factor in the geopolitical landscape of the world. And so, both on the AI side and on the defense um, and intelligence application side. Um, you know, we were, um, you know, very, very accurate in, in that. And so, you know, I think, you know, being able to catch one wave is great. If you can put two of them together, you know, so much the better. And, um, you know, that, that I think is, is, is really crucial when you're starting a company. And I think you can do lots of things, but if, 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 if the wave isn't moving, then you're not going anywhere. And if, if you were on the wave, you can do a lot of stuff that looks pretty stupid, but you'll still still end up in a good place. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you know, the the, the bad the bad surfer that catches the wave still ends up, you know, um, still ends up in a great place. Um, and you can be the best surfer, but if you're not on a wave, um, then it doesn't really matter. Um, so that that was incredibly important, right? Is catch the catch the right waves, which means, you know, you need to kind of bet on these big macro trends and and be part of that, right? I think the 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 final sort of piece of it all was um I think as as a CEO was realizing that you know you you're not when you start you're not really a CEO right you're you're sort of a manager of five people right and you call yourself a CEO but you're <laughs> you're a manager of five people but if you're successful one day your team is going to be hundreds or thousands and you have to get from a manager um, into a CEO. And, you know, professionally, you know, that development and that skills need to kind of um, need to kind of happen um, or you're not going to be a good CEO. 
um, when the time comes. And so, you know, I think I think going through that for me, it was like, all right, well, here's the things I'm good at. Here are the things that you know I'm I'm not so good at, and here's the places where I'm going to start working to do those things. Because the reality is, you know, when you're starting a company, um, you know, there's there's um, as a CEO and you've got great engineers, there's not that much you can do on a day-to-day basis. You don't have a product. You're not doing any sales. You've raised your money. You've, you've got the office. You've got some of the HR system stuff. And then you sit there and write, you can read the scientific papers and that that's great. And you can check in with your engineers about how you're doing, but you don't really, you, you know, they're like, leave me alone. Um, and so a lot of the time you're sitting there, you're like, well, there's nothing really for me to do. Um, you know, and, and what you realize in that is 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 that actually there's a lot to do, but it's actually planning for what the company is going to become and planning, you know, for the things that you need to do um, to be successful um, in, in the role of, as, of a CEO um, when the company becomes um, something bigger. Because you've got to go through this trajectory, this career arc where you go from, you know, a, a manager to a CEO, um, you know, and and all the responsibilities that come with that incredibly quickly right um no uh, no one else would ever be promoted into that kind of role uh with the experience that you likely have um you just never would hire that kind of person to do it and so you know you, you basically are right I've, i'm on the fast track to kind of you know get everything ready so i can you know go through and be a great ceo um, of a company that i expect this company to be and so you know i think i think that's extremely important um is 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 for founders um to go through that and sit down and, and, and really dig into the areas um, where they need to round out their skill sets and capabilities. And, you know, if you can combine the product sense, the sales um, sense, the financial, um, the technical, um, you know, you, you, you've got it, you've got it made, but no one starts, no one starts from that space. Right. Um, you know, that's something you earn over time. That's very interesting. So for you personally, do you prefer the kind of early stages of a startup where, just you and maybe a couple of people working on a product and trying to figure out how to take it to market or do you prefer kind of the the glass tower not being not bothering the engineers and just trying to think about the future and more about kind of building the structures of the company and finding people to take it forward i you know i i think i think one of the things that that comes through as as you build companies you 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 have to you have to kind of find enjoyment in all of the different things that you do um and one of the challenges is i i think is to find that enjoyment um you know uh and that can you know that can be mastery of, of different skills it can it can be you know just you know being you know um you know being being a student again as you go through that um but i think it's important to to to, to create um that space where you can get enjoyment from the different things um, I think that the second bit is when companies are growing, you know, when you're starting a company the second time, you know, I, for me, I'd always say like, enjoy where the company is, right? Don't be in a hurry to get the company like to the next stage. It'll get there soon enough and you'll never get this time back when you're just a team of five people or a team of 15, you, you'll never get that back. Right. And, you know, I think the second time through, it's like, enjoy where you are and enjoy the the kind of work that you're doing at the different stages. And, you know, I, I, I think 
I, I always you know remind other other founders and I say like you know this is at five people you're never going to have it easier on the management and the people side you've got five motivated people that are sitting down working together right there's really no operational issues that you need to deal with you know um, very little um, you know you know management because they're all kind of motivated and very very smart enjoy it right because that's not always going to be the case and you know certainly when there's 200 300 people that you're working with it's a very different experience as a CEO and so you know I think um, that being said, I, I think going through that journey, we you're continually having to create um, something from nothing, and you're continually having to change and adapt to the to the environment of the company. is is an incredible skill that very very few people have ever done, right? Very very few people have ever kind of taken you know um, you know companies through that journey. And I do think the founder CEO has something pretty special. Um, when they're in that, because you know, you know, no, but you know, basically, you know, the number of people that have done that as a percentage of the wider sort of employment pool is is tiny. Um, and so, you know, um, yeah, plan for the future. Make sure you've got the skills, uh, but at the same time, enjoy where you are um, because you're never going to go back. If you're successful, you're never going to go back to that to that those kinds of challenges and those problems. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's very true. I wanted to go back on something you said around like one of the waves that you chose to ride on for prime with primer is the geopolitical landscape. So you were in Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley is notorious for, I guess, the disdain for the defense industry. I guess, how do you think you cultivated that or how do you think you kept your mind open to that aspect and just not fell into that, I guess, the common train of thought? Yeah. I mean, look, and I was fortunate at Oxford to um, to have a lot of um, uh, close friends on the road scholarship who had served, um, who were coming um, from Afghanistan or were going to be deployed into Iraq. Um, you know, I think there's there's a large number of, of officers out of West Point, out of Annapolis that come um, and uh, are awarded road scholarships. Um, and so, you know, I, I think one of the things is is you know spending time you know with people that that have served or are serving. Um, you know, is is a lot of people in Silicon Valley don't know anyone um, that is, is serving or has served. Um, and they certainly, um, you know, they, they certainly very few, um, very few of those connections kind of, kind of exist out there. Um, so that was one, I think, right, is, is knowing the people. Um, and, you know, we, we were fortunate to have, a, um, you know, a high percentage of veterans on our team um, in Primer. And one of the things that, that helped immensely was the respect that they had inside of the organization, not not because they were veterans, but because of the work they were doing, right? Because of what they were able to do and build and create. Um, and as a result of that, um, you know, the if you didn't agree politically with um, with defense or, um, you know, working in, in that environment, you, you generally agreed with, um, you know, the, the, the connection and the friendship that you had with the people who had served, right? And so that, one of the things there, I think, is um, is that personal relationship that that changes things. I think the second bit is is the mission alignment, right? We talk a lot in the valley about having a mission, and people want to come in and create something that changes and shapes the world and does something good. And you realize all of that is there, and then you hear the stories um, from people from special forces of what they did um, in Afghanistan, or you hear um, of the stories 
from um, from from naval officers, um, you know, serving uh, in um, you know in, in the uh, in, in uh, you know in, in the um, in, in, in uh, the, uh, the the naval environment. Um, yeah, or well, the naval officers going through, and you hear those stories, and um, you know the um, you know I think there's a lot of respect, you know, for, for the mission um, that that they've that they've gone on. You really hear that that sense of mission. I think a lot of Silicon Valley really is about looking for that mission, hmm. and you know, people that have that have served have obviously been very very mission aligned, and so it aligns you know very well in that environment. I think the third thing here, um, you know, is one of the things there is like, you know. I remember in 2015, I'm like, there should be more connections between um, Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley. And the fact that there aren't is a problem. And, you know, if um, the U.S. is going to be successful in um, projecting, um, you know, its military power and and, uh, defending itself, it needs to adopt and bring in uh, technology um, and it needs to bring the best technology, um, you know, that's out there, which, you know, for artificial intelligence resides in Silicon Valley. And so that connection needs to be created. And it was one of those things that I was like, well, that's something that I think I can do here and something I can um, play a, a small part in, in making, um, making that connection stronger. And so, you know, going into that, one of the things um, for me was then having, you know, pretty open and honest conversations with um, people, um, uh, Silicon Valley engineers who were joining the company about what we were doing, why we were doing it, what some of the challenges were, and being very open and saying, look, you know, we've got a brand new technology that's you know improving at an exponential rate and in artificial intelligence. Um, we don't have all the answers, and you're going to be operating in um, a, an environment where there isn't always a hard and fast yes, no, black and white um, outcome. There's going to be a lot of gray, and if you're not comfortable in a gray environment where you're having to make decisions about um, about how this technology is going to interact with the defense um, industrial complex, then this isn't the place for you. But at the same token, if you think you can ignore defense, if you can put your head in the sand and just say, well, I don't want to work on defense, then you're, you're, you're deluding yourself because everything you see around you, the environment that allows for you to create and build companies and make money and live in a safe, free environment, that only exists because of defense. And if you don't want to work on defense, you don't have any right to sit down and say, I want the freedom that I'm enjoying. You've got to go and put that effort in. And this is a mission that is incredibly important. If you want something you wake up for and get excited about and feel proud that you left a legacy of importance, bring technology into the defense environment, and that's going to give all of those things for you. And so, you know, yes, there's going to be challenges. Yes, you're going to um, you know, be operating in, in a, an environment where you don't have all the answers. Um, but you know what? Um, you're going to have a seat at the table. Um, and that's in a very, very important seat um, to have and to hold and some responsibility that comes with that. And so, you know, it's it's also, I think, for people there and joining the team and saying, no, look, you know, there's, there is a responsibility um, that you're going to be making decisions and there's going to be consequences um, of those actions. And, um, you know, that's that's something that you're signing up for as part of this. And so, you know, um, but yeah, look, it was it was tougher in the middle of a Trump administration. Um, there was huge kind of, I think, politicization um, of everything um, in, in America between 2016 and 2020. Um, it would have been much easier um, to run a defense focused um, uh, technology company in Silicon Valley under almost any other administration. <laughs> but that that's what it was. And so we had to sit down and say, 
look, one of the things that's really important here is is for democracy is to support the institutions that govern that democracy or that 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 provide the foundation for that democracy. So the intelligence services, the defense services, these are things that democracies um, are built on. And um, that is very different from the administration um, that's sitting in the White House. And if everyone abandons the the, uh, institutions, then you're abandoning democracy as well. And we're actually in a a fight here, um, you know, not, um, not, 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 uh, you know, um, we're in a fight here with, with, um, you know, pretty significant consequences that if, you know, if, if America doesn't come out on top, um, or the Western, you know, liberal alliance doesn't come out on top of a future conflict, you know, with China and Russia, um, then the world looks very, very different. And so, you know, now's not the time to give up on these institutions. Now's not the time to give up on, on the democratic values. Now's the time to bring the best technology to bear um, on um, one of the most important problems in, in the world, which is defense and intelligence. That's well put. That's well put. My, my dad also served in, in the Air Army. Uh, and he actually had, did part of his training in the U.S. And one thing that he told me is that he finds it really uh, funny how like some of the new technology wants to hit the consumer market. And from his perspective, having been in the army, having seen that, he's like, oh, yeah, that has been there for years. Uh, so if, even if you're someone that's passionate about technology, if you look at history, a lot of the technological advancements have been made uh, as, as military push. Yeah, I mean, a huge amount. The Silicon Valley was built off of the backs um, of, of uh, defense spending, like yeah. very, very clearly. Um, you know, the the work, um, you know, that, that we see, um, you know, in the movie Oppenheimer was was um, obviously a huge amount of money that went into fundamental physics um, that was driven um, by defense spending. The internet uh, itself was um, a project created for communication networks, um, you know, that would be resilient to a, a global um, thermonuclear missile attack. And so... You know, um, all, all the different dynamics and computer vision that have driven in, um, you know, for self-driving cars were initially, um, you know, driven by DARPA um, funding. We um, at Primer, we took um, a lot of money from InQtel, which was the um, the investment arm of the intelligence um, community in the U.S. Um, we took a lot of money, um, you know, for, from, uh, you know, from them. Um, and they really pushed technology forward in circa 2016, when we took that investment into artificial intelligence for natural language processing, um, that was very, very early um, in that world. And so, you know, I think the defense environment um, or defense, you know, and intelligence, um, you know, organizations um, have had a long, long history of funding bleeding edge technology. Um, And, um, you know, that continues to the day here. I think that being said, like there, there is a separation between Silicon Valley and in Washington DC, even today, culturally, um, geographically, um, and technologically, and that has to close. And so, you know, one of the things here is, you know, is is, is hopefully we've we've taken a, a bit of a step to close that, and you know, hopefully um, other people can kind of see what we've done and um, and take on um, those sets of challenges as well. Nice, uh, Sean. I think we could stay here and chat for the whole day, but uh, we're conscious of your time and. We've uh, come close to to our end for today. It'd be great to have you back. We didn't we didn't even go into talking about more of the nooks and crannies of AI in defense, or kind of going into large large language models and how they've changed uh, the work that you've been building. So it would be nice to have you again. But just to kind of leave it off for this one, uh, so you just stepped down as CEO of Primer. What 
what are the next steps for you? How are you thinking about the future? What's, yeah, what's, what's driving your curiosity moving forward? Yeah, look, so um, I think for me, um, it was eight years of building it um, and had, you know, I think, you know, the, the space there um, to kind of uh, now step down and, um, and bring in a, um, a new CEO and, and, and get the team. Um, you know, up and running with with new finance and, and new capital coming into the company as well, leaving it in a really good place. So that was really important um, to get all that together. Um, for me, um, you know, as, as I think this this um, I think when you come out of, of building a company and, and you've you've put eight years of your life into it, I think there's there's time to sort of you know decompress um, and um, you know time to decouple a little bit from from that um, sort of life. Um, and, you know, for me, that, that involves um, some traveling and surfing and reading. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of happy to say I've been pretty successful on, on all of those. Uh, the, the reading list has been, has been great. You know, the surfing has, has been wonderful. Spent a lot of time in the water and, um, you know, been able to travel and just reconnect with a lot of friends that, um, you know, unfortunately, you don't get to spend a lot of time with when you're building these companies. So, so all of that's been great, um, and and I'm sort of you know may, maybe kind of halfway through that. Maybe there's another you know few months of this. Um, we'll, we'll see how how things are. Um, you know, I'm I'm particularly interested at the moment um, in swarm dynamics. I think one of the things there is artificial intelligence by itself is really interesting. But I think when you put artificial intelligence into a swarm, it becomes um, a lot more interesting. And so that kind of I think you know obviously has. Um, has sort of uh, a combinatorial uh, set of complexities that come with it, but swarm dynamics is, is really interesting, and you know I think there's there's some stuff there that that's fascinating. I think the other bit that I've been um, spending some time with um, some of the um, some of the uh, the America's Cup um, uh, yacht racing teams and, and looking at high speed um, foiling, uh, you know, um, uh, fluid mechanics and. And thinking a lot about um, you know what what high speed um, you know naval uh, warfare vessels um, might look like uh, um, from all of that, and so you know look I'm I'm enjoying just being able to kind of go and explore um, you know these technical places, read the scientific papers, meet some of the people that are building and creating these things, and start thinking about um, what those things might be and. And then also just, you know, I've been really, um, you know, happy to sit down and, and uh, you know, spend a bit of time advising um, other um, founders um, that are starting off on their journeys and um, spend time with them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be able to, to sit down and, and give advice on a problem that you don't actually have to solve. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's amazing how smart you are when you don't have to do the work to solve the problem. But, um, but no, I mean, joking aside, um, you know, it, it's, it's nice to sit down and, um, and uh, you know, be able to kind of um, give back a little bit there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, just, uh, just at the moment working on, um, on, uh, on, on the, the, the physical challenge for me at the moment, I've set myself um, a goal of uh, a 200 kilo squat and a 20 minute 5k run. And I, I've had a okay. look and I haven't seen a lot of people that have achieved this online. And so um, <laughs> it, it's proving to be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge to kind of get those because the, the, the squatting and the running kind of move in different directions, but I'll keep you posted. If I, if I achieve that, that's, uh, that's the goal for this year is to, is to get those two. So look, I'm 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 in a in a place where I can pursue sort of frivolous goals like that and kind of see if uh, if that works. But um, certainly in the new year, I'll I'll be popping back up and seeing kind of what what comes next for me and um, some some interesting stuff to come. I'm sure.
Awesome. Start putting out daily tweets with your progress. Put some <laughs> yeah, social pressure that's right. on, on you that. know, I'm, you know, I spend enough time in the, you know, and in, in, in the, uh, the, the world there that I know I'm not going to be, you know, doing any cage match fighting. That's, that's, um, that's not for me. So I'll, I'll focus on the running and the lifting and see if I can put that <laughs> into, into one place. Yeah. Um, it's all good. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was a very, very interesting chat. Hope to have you again soon. Um, and in the meantime, enjoy your travels in Bulgaria, Romania, and the world. I will. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Cheers.